Great. Bless you. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 16. I know we've been doing a series. And you know, the good news is, I, you know, some of you are going, are you ever going to get out of this book? Well, you know, it's got 52 chapters. I don't know if you know that. But I can preach other sermons from time to time. We keep coming back and keep coming back because I think there's some powerful lessons uh, in this book. How many know that there are times in life where life totally changes for us? I mean, you, you know, when, when you think about uh, an illness or an accident or a marriage breakup or war or disease, to just name a few that can totally alter the direction of our lives. How many know that happens? And we've seen that. And it can change how you live, and it can even change where you live. We're living in a day, I'm going to share this good news of amazing grace. God has opened the door, and he's prepared to forgive every last human being on the planet of all of their sins. How many say that's good news? God is so loving, so forgiving, so kind, and he's continually reaching out to us, and all we need to do is be willing. All we need to do is respond to him. And he will provide for us forgiveness and kindness and love and direction and mercy. Uh, And he desires to be in relationship with us. That's why he created us in the first place. You're not an accident. There was a reason why God allowed you to be born on this planet. He has a specific purpose in mind for every human being. It's incredible to think how awesome God is. I could just, you know, I I love preaching on the goodness of God or how amazing God is. That's fun stuff, you know. And then we shift a little bit and I start considering the great sacrifice he made, how he laid down his life, how he laid down his rights. Isn't that an amazing statement? He laid down his rights. He laid down divine prerogatives. He humbled himself. He became a man. He lived among us. And and then he even gave up his rights to life itself because he became a living sacrifice for us. How many say, wow, is that amazing? How good, how great is the love of God? And we sang a bit about it. And then I, I look around and I see many times we become often impassive, negligent, and indifferent and apathetic to God. Isn't that kind of tragic when you consider how invested God is in us and how we can just kind of shove him to the side corner? That's the sad part, isn't it? And yet I see many times the outcome of what I would consider an autonomous life. I I call it a self-directed life. And you know what the results uh, of uh, of a self-directed life is? Is confusion and anxiety and anger as we find we cannot control the events and the people and the circumstances to our advantage. How many know that's why people are so frustrated today? Because really, it's about them. It's about what I want. It's about controlling what I would like in life. And and sometimes we try to control other people or events or circumstances, but how many know you can't do that? We're not in control. Things are happening all the time, circumstances that are beyond our control. And... It doesn't take long to discover life is messy, it's confusing, and sometimes tragic. And we're in the middle of the mess. And many times, you know, we're the ones that are creating the problem. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. How how do we respond to all of this? And, you know, I'm a lover of wisdom literature. In the book of Proverbs, you know, I did preach through the entire book. I love that book because it teaches us how to live very practically. And I read this proverb. It says, there's a way that appears to be right. But in the end, it leads to death. 
It leads to separation from God. It leads to separation from people. It leads to brokenness in relationships. And eventually we find ourselves broken. And then we, it's so easy to want to blame people for how messed up our life is. But the reality is we've made some bad choices. But we don't want to take responsibility. So how do we know what is the right way? What should we do? Again, we turn to this same chapter in this wisdom literature and we see the need to seek God for direction. And it says in Proverbs 16, 1, it says, to humans belong the plans of the heart. In other words, you and I have all kinds of ideas, but it's the Lord that comes the proper answer of the tongue. In other words, God says, yeah, that'll happen or no, that's not gonna happen. You know, in your dreams, buddy, right? <laughs> uh, Proverbs 16, 2, all a person's ways seem pure to them. But God is evaluating our motives, is he not? Motives are weighed by the Lord. He goes on to say, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. Listen, why don't we take our ideas to God and say, what do you think about this, God? And then God can say, yeah, you know, I really like that. I put it in your heart. I want to see that implemented. Or, no, that's not exactly what I had in mind. I've got a totally different plan in mind, something far superior to that, you know? The Lord works out everything to its proper and even the wicked for the day of disaster. Oh, my goodness. You know, sometimes we look around and go, I don't understand all the evil in our world and what's going on. God has a purpose in it all, folks. He's even got a plan for that. And he goes on to say, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Now, that's, that's every one of us. If we walk with a haughty heart, an arrogant heart, proud heart, God says, no, we'll be, it'll affect our lives in a negative way. Now, we've been journeying through this book of Jeremiah, and we've seen God's people going their own way. And over time, they became seduced by the values of the people living within the promised land and around it. And we know that's true. And by the way, is there application to that today? Are we not being seduced all the time by the value system of a culture that's abandoned God? And we're bombarded with messagings from the internet, television, movies, what we read. Everything around us is screaming anti-God, against God. Is there a God? No God. You know, we get this messaging all the time. You know, you can do it. You have the right for this. You know, we have this unalienable rights. We can go down and talk about rights, rights, rights. I hear it all the time. And then when I look at Jesus, I see someone laying down his rights. Well, that's quite, quite the opposite messaging, wouldn't you say? Well, we're thinking about it. I've got you thinking. You know, you know, actually what happened is wickedness became so entrenched in the culture that the people lacked the ability to eventually discern between right and wrong. We're living in that moment, folks. People cannot figure out anymore what's right, what's wrong. Their knowledge of God became distorted. They really did not know God. Even though God had continued to speak words of direction, instruction, and warning over centuries, they repeatedly ignored what God had to say, his words through the prophets. So why were they so confused? Why are people so confused today? Why are people being deceived? Why are believers being deceived? Well, I think there's a reason. They were false prophets, giving reassurances that were causing them to have a false sense of security. Don't you think we want to hear the messaging, everything's going to be okay, it's all going to work out? But you know, if we're in sin... We can't tell people with that assurance that everything's gonna work out. As a matter of fact, I would argue with you today that throughout the scriptures, the primary message of the Bible has been one of repentance. 
Jesus came along and said, repent and believe. The apostles preached repentance. The prophets preached repentance. Everywhere I read in scriptures is a message of repentance. What does repentance mean? It means I'm changing my mind and coming into an agreement with God. I'm turning away from my self-directed autonomous life and I'm turning towards God and I'm yielding my will and I'm embracing God's plan and purpose for my life. And I can pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, not my will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was wrestling between what he wanted and what God wanted, said, not my will, but yours be done. That's repentance. It's a turning towards God. In their minds, you know, they felt they were serving the Lord, but they had adopted a syncretistic concept of religion. In other words, they were blending all these religious ideas. You know, we're living in a hodgepodge today. We're blending stuff. You know, we have everything in the blender and we have all this creep coming into, you know, what biblical uh, theology is all about. I was gonna say Christianity, but I think even Judeo-Christian concepts, God has revealed himself from the very beginning. He's He's, there's only one God, and yet there's all this blending going on. And thereby, they were distorting God's commandments. They were putting idols ahead of God. Do you know, if you go to Israel today, you'd be shocked. The archaeologists will tell you, they dig up idols all the time because the people of God were syncretistic. They worshipped Yahweh, but they also worshipped all these gods of all the peoples around them. And yet, what's the greatest commandment? The first commandment in the Bible God says, you shall have no other gods but me, because they're not gods at all. They're idols, and actually, they're spirit beings. They're they're, they're actually the rebels that came out of heavens. This is the power of Satan and his demonic forces, and, and people don't even realize that when they're worshiping these idols, they're actually worshiping demons. And so God knows that, and they're destructive, and, and they promise a whole bunch of wonderful things, but in the end, you end up with nothing. As a matter of fact, they just strip you of dignity, value, and personal worth. That's what they do. God doesn't do that. He may, he may call you to deny your sinful self, but he'll call you to the self that he designed you to become. We were designed to reflect the image of God. We were designed to reveal the character of Almighty God to the people around us. And we're gonna see as we get into this chapter what it was all about. So they were putting these idols ahead of God. They were in violation of the greatest commandment. Now the day of the Lord was at hand. God was about to judge the nation. Folks, I wanna tell you something. The day of the Lord is coming again. And it's a great day for the believer because you and I can rejoice. Our redemption is drawing near. But for the majority of the world, it is a day of judgment. We don't want to hear that, Pastor. That's reality. God is a God of justice. God is a God of righteousness. God hates evil. God hates it when people oppress other people. God hates it when people are violated and abused and manipulated. God is going to address every evil thing that's been done on the planet, and that day is coming, and it's a call to people to turn to God and repent from our sins so God can forgive us of those things that we've done wrong, and he wants to forgive us. He wants to transform our lives. What a powerful message the scriptures are teaching us. God was about to judge his own people. Peter says judgment always begins at the house of God. And if we can barely stand, what's gonna happen to the rest of the people? They 
were mystified by Jeremiah's warnings. This, this is really interesting to me. They were mystified that he was calling them to repentance. Why would God even have to tell us to smarten up? That's what they were thinking. You know, I think it's because idolatry is not always blatant or obvious to us. We're very easily deceived. As a matter of fact, in the next chapter, I looked up ahead, I peeked. It said the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Isn't that interesting? We don't even know our own hearts. You know, I was reading and preparing last week for the book of 1 Corinthians, and, and the Apostle Paul is dealing with wisdom, and, and uh, he's dealing with all kinds of interesting things in the book of Corinthians, but there was a little quote there that kind of gripped me. I was reading Gordon Fee, and he said this, uh, for both Jew and Gentile, the ultimate idolatry is that of insisting that God conform to our own prior views as to how the God who makes sense ought to do things. Do you know what he's really saying there? Well, let me unpack it for us. We then judge God's actions through our limited human wisdom. Don't you think most people on the planet are judging God based on our limited understanding and we're criticizing what God's doing? God chose the foolishness of preaching to save people. God, God has chosen the crucified Christ to, to nullify the wisdom of this world. That's what Corinthians is talking about there. And we become idolaters when we, de when, when we determine, become the authority of what's best for our lives. Rather than submitting ourselves to walk in his ways. That's what I mean by a self-directed life. We can be Christians, but we're going, basically we're saying we serve God on our terms and not his. Do you think that we might be guilty of trying to serve God on our terms and not his terms? And folks, when we do that, that's idolatry. What we're doing is putting ourselves ahead of God. It's a pretty challenging thought, isn't it? Are we trying to manipulate God to serve us? Because you know, that's what a lot of people do. And sometimes as Christians, we can fall into that trap. We can bargain with God. Well, let's take a look at this chapter that I want to unpack today. First of all, there's two critical aspects of the message when life stops being normal. First of all, it stops being normal when God judges us. Everything changes. And God was going to judge the nation for their idolatry. He begins by speaking to his servant Jeremiah a word that would demonstrate how serious the hour had become. I mean, God had been warning these people, not just for a year, not just for a decade, but for centuries. He had been warning his people, and they were getting worse instead of better. Unbelievable. God was calling Jeremiah to abstain from certain social customs as prophetic signs so that the people would begin to ask him, Jeremiah, why are you doing that? It's not what normal people do, Jeremiah. Oh, this is why I'm doing that. God was gonna do that. So Jeremiah actually in this chapter is forbidden to marry, to mourn, and to mingle, as John Guest says. The first prophetic sign was that Jeremiah was asked to abstain from marriage. That, by the way, is a radical departure from normal life. Listen to what he says. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah. You must not marry and have sons or daughters in this place. So why was God forbidding Jeremiah to do something that was considered healthy and valuable? Because we know that the scriptures teach in the book of Genesis it's not good for man to be alone. So God's not against marriage. Matter of fact, God's for it. But why in this situation was he doing that? Well, it's because it was not a normal moment. This was an abnormal thing. Look at verse three. For this is what the Lord says about the sons and daughters born in this land and about the women who are their mothers and the men who are their fathers. 
They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried, but will die like dung lying on the ground. They will perish by sword and famine, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. That's a shocking statement, don't you think? He's saying the reason why I'm not going to let you get married is because Jeremiah's going to tell people, the reason I'm not marrying is because I wouldn't want to put my family through what's about to happen. That's his message that he's going to give to the people. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul talks about the same thing in Corinthians. Isn't that interesting? There's a very interesting text of Scripture, and I wonder if Paul is gleaning from this chapter in Jeremiah when he was asked about the single life and the married life, and he said, because of this present crisis, I think it's not good for a man, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Now, there was, there was something going on in Paul's time that was very difficult. And he's saying, don't, you know, it's not a normal time. It's not a normal hour. So he goes on, if you're pledged to a woman, in other words, you're engaged, do not seek to be released. If you're married, don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. In other words, this isn't time to get married. He's telling them, the Corinthians, at that hour. But then he goes on to say, but if you marry, you have not sinned. So marriage is not the issue here, guys. He's talking about the hour in which he was in and and what is about to happen here in the story in Jeremiah's time is they're about to go into captivity. They're about to be exiled from the land. Now, sometimes when we read this, we don't understand the significance of it because the land represents the presence of God. And what God was about to say is, I'm going to remove you from my presence. You've polluted the land by your sin, and then you're going to remove you from me. And by the way, that's what happens in all of our lives. You want to get the application for today? When you and I sin, we're actually polluting ourselves and we're removing God. We're pushing God out of our lives. That's what we're doing. And we can say all kinds of words, but that's the reality. And so what God wants to do is cleanse us and revive us and renew us so he can restore us and we can have relationship with the one who designed us. And that's when we get healthy. You want to talk about psychology for a minute. You're only healthy when you're holy. How's that? They go together. Because the word holy and whole, W-H-O-L-E and holy, H-O-L-Y, same idea. A lot of broken people in our world today. We talk a lot about mental illness today and all kinds of problems. I'm going to say one of the major reasons, one of the most underlying, we don't ever discuss it, is because we've turned our backs on God and we're so far away from who God wants us to be that we're falling apart. We're breaking down as a society. We're breaking down as individuals. We're breaking down as families. We need to return to God. That's the answer. Robert Davidson points out marriage in normal circumstances in Israel was not optional. It was a family matter and it was usually arranged at a family, uh, at a fairly young age. Only through marriage was there the hope of the family name living on across the years. So celibacy was not considered ideal. It was an abnormality. So Jeremiah's celibacy, therefore, marked him off from other people. It was a dramatic way of saying to the people that normal life was coming to an end and there was no future for their community. That's a powerful message, wouldn't you say? So he wants Jeremiah to dramatize the message by being a celibate. Isn't that interesting? People thought that Jesus was Jeremiah. Why? Because he was a celibate. That was not normal in the Jewish culture. God was in essence saying that life was about to stop being normal. I stated that this can happen when it happens, things happen to us, but it can also happen because we ourselves 
are turning our backs on God and God says, okay, I'll let you experience a non-normal life now. What I really intended for you was far better than what you're getting. But if you'll turn to me, you'll receive what I have in mind for you. Well, look at the second prophetic sign. It was to demonstrate that mourning was forbidden to him. In verse 5 it says, For this is what the Lord says, Do not enter a house where there's a funeral meal. Do not go to mourning or showing sympathy, because I have withdrawn my blessing, my love, and my pity from this people, declares the Lord. I've withdrawn my hesed. That word love there is hesed in Hebrew. It's this covenant compassion and mercy and care for the people. He said, you've violated my covenant. I'm gonna withdraw my blessing in your life. That's what he's talking about here. I don't want you to go into these funeral situations. Both high and low will die in the land. They will not be buried or mourned. This is the reason why I'm not gonna let you go there. Because this, how many know this is violating social custom? You would actually would go to a funeral. Because you're living in a small town. When somebody died, everybody went. Jeremiah didn't go. Jeremiah, why aren't you coming to the funeral? Listen, both high and low will die in this land. They will not be buried or mourned, and no one, will cut, no one will cut themselves or shave their head for the dead. In other words, there'll be so much death, there'll be no more funerals. There'll be nobody there to conduct them. There'll be nobody there to attend to them. He's, he's actually demonstrating through his behavior what's about to happen. It's a prophetic sign. Verse seven, no one will offer food to comfort those who mourn for the dead, not even for father or a mother, nor will anyone give them a drink to console them. Now, I think there's a number of ideas that are being expressed here that are interesting. The first, this idea of self-mutilization. Remember, no one's gonna be cutting themselves. By the way, God forbid that happening by law. That was a pagan practice. But you see, the Judeans were so caught up in the culture that they were practicing pagan responses. Isn't that interesting? They, were, they were, had been so... A, acculturated, that's a good word, acculturated, that they were doing what the pagans did when people died. He said, you won't even be able to do that. He goes on to say, it was a custom at, the, at a bereavement to, to go to the bereaved and bring food. We do that today, do we not? We want to comfort people, you know, we know they're grieving, they probably need some support, we bring food to them. You won't even be able, he says, don't even do that. You see, as Davidson points out, disaster was coming so shattering that the normal conventions of society no longer applied. Not even the customary burial rites. And when a society dies, it is implied the conventions through which it organizes its life die with it. Is anybody getting a sense that we're breaking down as a culture? How many sense that? You sense our culture is beginning fragmented. We're just, we're starting to fall apart, you know? You know, we talk about, you know, there's no supply chain. I'm, I'm gonna tell you right now, our culture is just, it's coming, it's grinding down. You can see what's, we're falling apart. The wheels are coming off. The way we used to do things, the good things that we did for one another, they're just falling apart. That's when you know the society is coming undone. Our society is actually coming undone. Thirdly, we see that celebrating fest, festivities were forbidden to Jeremiah, again, as a prophetic sign. And do not enter a house where there's feasting and sit down to eat and drink. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, before your eyes and in your days, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness to the voices of bride and bridegroom in this place. There won't, there won't be normal life. Normal life is coming to an end. How many know right now normal life in the Ukraine has come to an end? How many know that's true? And some of us knew here recently normal life came to an end for us. 
And I'm, I'm telling you, we need to hear this. We need to turn our faces back to God. People go, when is it gonna come back to normal? When we humble ourselves and ask God to forgive us and turn our face towards God. That's the right answer. We need to turn to him like never before. Jeremiah the celibate, consciously absent from family funerals and weddings alike. What a powerful, costly witness he, was, he, was, he made to the coming breakdown of all normal life in a God-forsaken community. Really, the messenger was bearing the message by action and word. How many see that? He wasn't just telling people the message. He was living the message. Now, that, that, that was raising questions in people. You can see why when he was not behaving the way the rest of them were behaving, they were asking him, why are you doing this? And then Jeremiah began to tell him. He had a message to bring. And so his life was demanding from the people the question to be asked, you know, so then God says this, when you tell these people all this and they ask you, why has the Lord decreed such a great disaster against us? What wrong have we done? How many go, are you gotta be kidding me? Can I tell you what happens when you and I get into sin? We don't see it. We think we're okay. Come on now. Our hearts get hard, we get blind. We don't see that we have a problem. If you ask the average person, you know, how are you doing? They'll say, I'm doing great. Do you see yourself as a good person? Not primarily. The average person, if you ask them, will see themselves as primarily a good person. We're all good guys. What does God see? Not what you see, not what you think, not what others think. What does God think? What wrong have we done? What sin have we committed against the Lord our God? Really? Then say to them, it's because your ancestors forsook me, declares the Lord, and followed other gods and served and worshiped them. They forsook me and did not keep my law. In other words, they broke the covenant I had with them. Your forefathers did this. You're thinking, well, yeah, they're bad. We're good, right? Next verse. But you have behaved even more wickedly than your ancestors. In other words, if you think they're bad, you're worse. You know, isn't it interesting in our culture today? We're accusing our ancestors of all kinds of bad stuff. We think we're great. I'm gonna make a declaration today, we're worse. That's a shocking statement. See, we don't wanna hear that. We're worse. See how all of you are following the stubbornness of your own evil hearts instead of obeying me. Because if we're not obeying God, we're worse. We should know better. We should be able to look at their example and say, hey, if they messed up that badly, we should learn from their bad example and do better. We're worse. We're doing even worse things. That's what Jeremiah was saying to the generation he was speaking to. The results are inescapable. So I'm gonna throw you out of this land into a land neither you nor your ancestors have known and there, there you're gonna serve other gods day and night for I'll show you no favor. You wanna be idolaters? I'll send you into captivity. That you'll get to be real idolaters over there. That's all those people do. Wow. He says, matter of fact, then say to them, it's because your ancestors, oh. Then he goes on to say this. But now, I'm gonna send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they're gonna catch them. And after I'll send for them many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevice of the rocks. In other words, what God is saying here is, listen, you can't escape this. No escape. Just like fishermen fish for fish, just like hunters hunt for the game, 
God says, I'm gonna search you all out. You're not gonna escape this decree. You're not gonna escape what's about to happen. He goes on to say, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin because they've defiled my land with their lifeless forms of their vile images and have filled my inheritance with their detestable idols. Now, you read that statement and go, man, they're gonna get twice as much bad done to them? No, that expression, double for their wickedness, God says, no, I'm gonna pay, think of it this way. Let's, let's re-translate that. I'm gonna pay them fully. I'm gonna give them the exact amount that they deserve. How many know today our judicial system is so broken, people rarely get the punishment they deserve? God says, no, in, in the days ahead, I'm a God of justice. They're gonna get exactly what they deserve. Now, when you and I come to God and receive salvation, we're not getting what we deserve. How many realize that? We're getting forgiveness, we're getting mercy, we're getting grace. Thank God for that. What we deserve is a lot worse. Isn't that true? I'm speaking for myself. I know what I deserve. I deserve a lot worse. But God in his grace and mercy, his forgiveness. But you know, I'm so happy about one thing. We learn from Jeremiah's life that he's part of the message. Now, what about us? How does this apply to you and me? You and I are the message. We have to live a certain way so that when people look at the way we live, they ask us questions. Let me give you an example. Let's go to Peter for a minute. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war, wage war against your soul. Can I just say this? That every believer, you have two natures inside of you. You have the old fallen nature and you have God's nature inside of you. And the spirit of God is living in you and you have the authority and power as a believer to say no to sin and yes to God and God will empower you to do what's right. We have to abstain from those sinful desires. That means we have to say no to those things because those are the things that are waging war with us and if we surrender to those things, they take us over. We become slave to sin again. I see a lot of Christians struggling with this. Romans talks at length about that. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. You and I should be model citizens. You and I should be model employees. You and I should be the kind of people that people say, I love you as a neighbor. I love you as an employer. I love you as an employee. I love having you around. You know, you're doing good to people. You only do good to people. You don't do harm to them. That's powerful stuff. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. If you keep doing the right things, you know, they can, they'll accuse you, but that doesn't mean they can stick. Live as free people, but not, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Wow, these are powerful injunctions. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. We're having a hard time with some of these admonitions right now. I can tell. Peter goes on to explain that we may experience injustice. We're not to respond with evil, rather we're to do good to people who treat us poorly. Listen to what it says in chapter three. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and don't be frightened. He says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I love these texts. They're so beautiful. What's he saying? Live the message. Live the message. 
you know, keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let me move on to the second critical aspect. This is only two points. It's the restoration of his people after their humiliation. You know, why does God discipline us? Because he loves us. I think one of the most important things after discipline is to reassure the person that love is the underlying motive, right? You know, it was God's love that addressed the sin of the nation. God's intent was not annihilation, but redemption. Can we hear that? So when God, when God speaks into our life to correct us, you know, instead of getting defensive and offended, let's just see it as, you know what, God is interested in our well-being. He's gonna speak to these issues in our lives. God had every intention of restoring the nation. You know, I was so happy to see these verses in this chapter. I'm going, it was pretty dark, but then I found these two beautiful little verses. And this is what I wanna focus in on, verse 14. However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Verse 15, but it will be said as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of the land of the north, out of Babylon and out of all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave to their ancestors. God says, listen, I may be banishing you for a season, but I'm gonna bring you back. I'm gonna restore this relationship. That's my desire, God says. I love this. This is so beautiful. Now, Andrew Dearborn, a, a commentator, writes, for generations of God's people after the Babylonian exile, the second exodus of the people from Babylon was a testimony to the faithfulness and forgiveness of God. It would indeed become proverbial. Instead of being you know, uh, delivered from Egypt, we were now delivered from Babylon. But can I tell you something? That's only a foreshadowing. No wonder Isaiah told his generation after that judgment, salvation would come. And they were to forget the former things and not to dwell on the past. Isn't that beautiful? How much greater is our own exodus and deliverance from slavery to sin and exile from God by the restorative work of Christ bringing us to the Father? Has not God delivered us from an even greater enemy than Egypt or Babylon? Has not God, uh, I would say yes, a thousand times yes, he has. God has delivered you and I from sin and shame and the devil and death. We need to move beyond our past. How many say that's probably true? As a matter of fact, I, I have a deep concern. I think one of the mistakes of, of, of I'll just say it this way. I, I'm not against psychology. I believe in it when it's good psychology, okay? And I, I love theology, and I really do love theology, but I don't like bad theology, and I don't like bad psychology, okay? So what does that look like, Pastor? an overemphasis on the past. I'm serious about this. I think the church, sometimes we get kind of sucked in and we go there and we start camping on the mistakes of the past. Our culture is camped right there in the past right now. All we're doing is blaming and criticizing and smashing and destroying the past, right? Isn't that what we're doing? Here's what we need to do with the past. We need to, number one, learn from the past. Okay, number one. Number two, we need to forgive the past. We need to forgive the people who have hurt us in our past. 
And we need to let go of that past. And we need to forgive ourselves from what we've done wrong in the past and stop camping there. How many hear what I'm saying? It's really important we do this. I think, you know, we need to understand the power of the cross to negate the past. I don't think we understand the power of the cross. Let me just say it to you this way. Uh, how many realize that if you come to Christ, something very significant happens? Let me just point it out to us. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. A new creation has arrived. The old has gone. The new is here. I wrote the cross as a demarcation line. Okay? We now need to learn to live in the spirit, to obey the spirit as revealed in the scriptures. And when we do that, the past no longer defines us anymore. Too many people are blaming the past, criticizing the past. They're blaming people. They're camped in unforgiveness. We got to move past all that stuff. Matter of fact, let me just tell you what we need to be doing. Listen to what Paul says here. One thing I do, this one thing I do, forgetting what is what? The past, behind. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Not that, you know, isn't that, a, isn't that an amazing statement? What is Paul, this powerful imagery. I'm running towards a goal. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of you recognize that you're in a spiritual race and you're running towards a goal? Now, I want you to try doing this. Not, not very long. Turn your head and start looking backwards and start running forward. <laughs> How long will you be able to do that before you're getting hurt on your face? Come on now. It's going to happen so fast it's unbelievable. As a matter of fact, you're going, I'm even afraid to do that. So I'm going to say this to all of us Christians that are listening to me right now. Stop looking backwards. Start looking forward. You need to let go of all that went on. If you have hang-ups in the past, forgive it. You need to forgive the past. You need to let go of all that garbage. You are not the person you once were. I, I said this to Patty. You never met me. You've met the new me. That's true. She, I, I, became, I was a believer before I ever met Patty. She's never known the old guy. I don't even like the old guy. Okay? He's gone. But if I live and say, well, that's who I am, and I've defined my whole life by that, there'd be no hope for me. Matter of fact, I, I believe there's so much hope in this world. It's amazing. The moment we get our eyes off of what we were and to what we can become. Are you, are you get, how many are catching something here this morning? This is so profound. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. I want you to run towards him. I want you to stop looking backwards. How many say, Pastor, I have to confess right now, I have a tendency to look backwards. Raise your hand right now. Come on, be honest. I'm looking backwards. I'm looking backwards. I'm looking at my past. I'm looking at unforgiveness. I'm looking at what I did wrong. I'm looking at what people did wrong to me. I'm saying to you, let it go. Just let it go. Say, Lord, the past is the past. I can't undo the past, but I can come to you and ask for forgiveness, and you can set me free from the past, and I can begin to run forward as a new creation. When that happens, you will be a different person, I tell you. That's the good news. Oh, and he goes on to say here, God's judgment on idolatry is an example for others. You know, it's interesting. Learn from other people's mistakes. 
Lord, my strength and my fortress, he's praying, my refuge in time of distress, to you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, our ancestors possessed nothing but false gods, worthless idols that did them no good. You see, what have we all learned? How many here, you're, you're actually a Jewish person? That's your background. Most of us, very few. We're all Gentiles. All of our ancestors were idol worshipers. Where have we learned not to be that? From the people of God. And we learn what happens when you're in idol worship. It's destruction. Didn't, did them no good. Goes on to say, do people make their own gods? Yes. He says, yes. But they are not gods. You go, well, yeah, I know these people are fashioning things with their hands. No, 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 no. We make our own gods. Science, politics, technology, and ourselves. These are some of the idols that we worship at. Come on now. We lay them down. We put those things down and say, okay, God, I will have no other God before me, including myself. You say, how do you make yourself a God? Whenever I say, my will be done, instead of thy will be done. I've made God subservient, and I become my own God. And when I do that, I'm headed for disaster. Is that powerful? I think we need to learn something today. This, is, this has got application for right now, folks. If we're not primarily looking to God and see human agencies as only tools in God's hands rather than trusting them, this is the nature of idolatry. If we're looking to ourselves or any other person group apart from God, we have made them idols. Therefore, I will teach them this time. I will teach them my power and might. Then they will know that my name is the Lord. So I'm gonna have a stand this morning as we close. And I wanna just recap real quick. When life stops being normal, what then? Well, number one, we need to take inventory. We're gonna do that right now. We're taking inventory. How am I living my life? How are, how are we living our lives? Are we living a self-directed life or a life surrendered to reveal God's character through us? May we recognize the need to change our ways that's what repentance is. Change of mind leads to a change of direction and a change of behavior. However, if what's happening to us has come through accident or other tragedy, how should I respond? I think we need to look to God to sustain us. God ultimately is in control of everything. All things work together for good. Is God sovereign? Can God control things? Is God in control? I think he is. So whatever happens to me, I have to sit down and say, okay, I don't get it. How many say there's things that have happened to you go, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand. Why don't we just trust God? That's when we stop playing God. We just, okay, God. For whatever reason this has occurred in my life, I'm gonna trust that you're gonna make good out of what seems to be terrible stuff. All things work together for good. All things includes even bad stuff, folks. All things. He's going to use it. Joseph had no idea when his brothers sold him into slavery, God had a big plan. Isn't that true? 
Did he know he was going to become the prime minister of Egypt and save his nation? He had no idea. God used a very weird vehicle called slavery to bring him to a place of exaltation. God brought him down before he could lift him up. Sometimes God does that in our lives. He brings us down before he elevates us. That happens over and over again. Amen? So with every head bowed this morning, Can people know, can people know by the way you're living who God is? Can people know by the way you're living who God is? I'm challenging us today. What am I saying to us? I'm, ask, I'm calling us to repent is what I'm doing. I'm saying, look, why don't we ask God to forgive us? Why don't we ask God to come and cleanse us? Why don't we ask God to refine us and renew us and repurpose us, you know, I, 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 I see sometimes these shows. I, I have to admit, I love these shows because it speaks something of the nature of God's redemptive work. I love it when they take old houses and they refurbish the whole thing. And I go, wow, I, I, I didn't see that coming. You know? And I love it when God takes a broken life. It's so broken and messed up. And God takes a hold of that life and that person fully surrenders to God. All of a sudden, I go, wow, I never saw that coming. You know, I was so blessed on Friday. My, my youngest brother phoned me. And he is, he, he told me a year and a half ago, I'm a different person. I go, I, I know. He's preaching to me every time we phone, he phones. And I'm just sitting there going, yep, you're right. Right on. It's so, Patty was crying yesterday. She's going, the transformation in him is so dramatic, it's powerful. You know, I've seen God change people's lives dramatically. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what? I need to change, Pastor. I need help in changing. God will help you. That's the good news. God is in, in the transformation business. And it may not be that dramatic. Maybe your house isn't falling apart. Maybe there's just a few rooms that need remodeling. You know what I mean? You're a believer and you're going, yeah, I've got, I've got some things right, but I got some other areas I need to straighten out. Maybe we're here today and you're saying, you know what? I recognize I sometimes try to manipulate God. I recognize I do live a self-directed life. When it when crosses purpose between God's will and my will, I end up doing what I want and I try to justify it. Let me tell you something, that doesn't work. You're just fooling yourself. With every head bowed right now, how many here say, I want God to do a new work in me? Just raise your hand, that's you. I want God to do a greater work in me, a new work in me. Powerful, beautiful. Beautiful. People are responding. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you today that you are the great I am. You're the one that brings transformation in our lives. You're the one that brings forgiveness. You're the one that brings goodness into our lives, Lord. And I just pray today that we will not live in self-deception. That you will set us free, Father, to serve you with our whole heart. And help us live the message in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.